Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All of television history is contained within the box of delights. It was happening in front of us. Incredible. In our living rooms. It was amazing. Guests pick their favorite television moment. And tell us why they love it. And is this the episode where Daisy's just been for the interview at the Woman's Magazine? Flaps. That's it, Flaps. Yeah. Named one of Radio Time's best podcasts of the year. I don't understand people who don't see the joy in drawing the curtains, mug of hot chocolate and something nice on TV. Like, what could be nicer than that? Than having a snuggle. Exactly. Nostalgia in bite-sized chunks. Box of delights from Great Big Owl. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the second part of the 53rd episode of Chart Music. The difficult 53rd episode, if you will. Once again, massive apologies for that. My fault, nothing to do with my colleague Sarah B and Simon Price. And on behalf of them, it gives me great pleasure to say, All right then, you pop crazy youngsters. It is time to get stuck into this episode of Top of the Pops. Always remember, we make O'Dan your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. Seven o'clock on Thursday, May the 12th, 1988, and we are five months into the reign of the fifth executive producer of Top of the Pops, Paul Chiane, a 46-year-old BBC veteran who got his start on Zocco, the BBC's first attempt as a Saturday morning kids show, hosted by a talking pinball machine, which was made by Janet Ellis's dad in 1969. <laughs> Let's go through his other credits, me dears. So, after that, he did 23 episodes of Jack and Ori in 1969. In 1970, he did Ed and Zed, the Saturday morning kids show which starred Ed Stewart and a robot. Hope and Keen's Crazy House in 1971. Out of Space, another Saturday morning kids show from 1973. Bonnie, a kids show about a female sea captain in 1974. The Hope and Keen scene in 1975. And after a few episodes of Rent-A-Ghost in 1976, he seemed to have taken a break from the BBC, coming back in 1979 to do a couple of series of the Basil Brush show in the Aventis. 
From there, in 1981, he oversaw the relaunch of Cracker Jack for four years. Then he did two series of The Keith Harris Show. He reunited with the hosts of Cracker Jack to produce the Cranky's Electric comic while producing 129 episodes of Call My Bluff. And the most recent thing he's done uh, is the recent series of the Kenny Everett television show. I'm detecting a pattern in all of that, aren't you? In what, in what way? Kids shows. Well, yeah, kids shows and light entertainment. And I suppose it's an example, not, not the first example either, but of um, Top of the Pops being given to somebody uh, who whose track record is in light entertainment rather than mm. the arts. And I know Top of the Pops was never... The arty music show, but even so, you can kind of you can kind of see see that in the fingerprints that he leaves on it. Mm. I mean, he'd only do sixty six episodes at Top of the Pops. Uh, he became HIV positive in the summer of nineteen eighty nine and would die in nineteen ninety one. He didn't have much chance to change a lot of things. The two key things he did was in nineteen eighty nine he started introducing albums back into top of the pops uh, but the main thing is he's the one who brought in all the kids tv presenters so you've got um simon parkin uh anthea turner andy crane that lot presenting top of the pops so, which was yeah. a bone of contention when we discussed this in a previous episode of chart music i was definitely even even as a child as i was at the time i was definitely kind of like hang on what are they doing here it was just mm. sort of a, an odd dissonant kind of thing like, you know, because yeah. I, I didn't feel, I suppose, yeah, it, if you think about it, Top of the Pops is quite an awkward thing. It is neither fish nor fowl, you know, where I can imagine mm. there were a lot of furrowed brows over what to do with it and where to put it and how to how to deal with it. You know, like, is it light yeah. entertainment? Is it kid? No. Is it a kid's show? No, but, you know, and yeah, and yeah. the failure to sort of take it seriously in that way um, is, mm. is quite evident in some of its more kind of threadbare periods. But, um yeah, I, I didn't I didn't really want to see Anthea Turner's, you know, chirpy face. Apart from anything else, I mean, much as I've complained about, you know, the, the various deficits of, of, of different Top of the Pops presenters, it, it's always weird when you see someone who's a, who's really professional about it, as kids' TV mm. presenters were at that time, you know, very yeah. sort of sharp and on it. And you get that with the sort of the, the late period, you know, the, the sort of end days of Top of the Pops. Mm. It's cap, that Cap Dealey-type professionalism. Yeah, you know, it was just a little bit, or Anthea Turner type professionalism was just a little bit, um, just kind of didn't quite fit. Yeah, I mean, because when I was a kid, I absolutely fucking loved Top of the Pops, but I kind of like the idea that they were presenters for different things. I like the fact that Brian Kant and Fred Harris would never mix with. DLT and Tony Blackburn. Yeah. Actually, though, I'm thinking a, a Brian Kant presented Top of the Pops could have been kind of amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. <laughs> well, they could have gone the whole hog and just, you know, I don't know, get get Bagpuss in. Get, you know, yeah. Get, <laughs> get, get Bagpuss to sit up on the gantry and just yeah. awaken. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, and then after the number Julian one's Cope. been on, he goes to sleep and everyone in the fucking studio <laughs> goes to sleep as well. <laughs> Oh, that that's adorable. I'm just imagining that's, that that's now. That's all I want like, to see now. <laughs> and the you know you'd have the backing dancers would just be the the little mice. You know, yeah. yeah. Simon Bates as Yaffle. You could, you could have a dance troupe called Chocolate Biscuit Machine. <laughs> I I didn't have TV as I mentioned because I was and, and I was I wouldn't have watched it anyway because I was a miserable goth. But um, had I caught an episode and there was. Anthea Turner on it, I'd have been like, fuck off Anthea Turner. That's, you know, that's the last thing I want to see. Yeah. Really, yeah, I, I would I would have hated that development. But apart from that, I would, 
it would seem that uh, Paul Charney was mainly given the job as a safe pair of hands. Mm. You know, just sort of continuing what had been set in place in the 80s. Yeah, he had, had a, a heck of a CV, really. I mean, I know it's, it's kind of not quite yes. anything like this, but, you know, he's done enough sort of interesting stuff and weird stuff. I can't believe how many series were there of the Keith Harris show. Uh, enough. Oh, man, it's never off the fucking telly. Christ. Yeah. yeah, again, even as a kid, found that entire thing just a bit weird and creepy and unfunny mm. and unappealing. I wonder if it was a BBC ploy to have a pool of presenters who would start off as children's presenters and then grow old with their audience. Mm. So there'd be eternal older brothers and sisters. Because by this point, the idea of a, a TV presenter, you know, in in the 70s, it would be, you know, people like Tony Hart and Brian Kant, like kindly uncles. Mm. And then by the 80s, the, these people are, you know, your cooler older brother's mates or something like that. I think that's happened with people like Philip Schofield. You know what I mean? Started off as a kid's TV presenter and now he's doing whatever shit he's doing now. Fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. this morning. Shitty adverts. Yeah, those terrible adverts that are on all of the time. I don't know, but I didn't like it. I didn't approve of it. I felt... Mm. patronised yeah but the trouble is when when people are brought in because they chime with a particular generation and then they are allowed to grow old it means that the next generation along inherits them and is a bit kind of baffled and that's why if I can mention the S word we inherited like monsters like Savile Mm. and you know even leaving aside his crimes just the presence of that creepy fucking freak Mm. and never mind Savile DLT Mm, DLT you know you're just like looking at these people as a as a child thinking well I don't really understand why they are there you wouldn't have had the sort of context or the cultural knowledge to think well uh, maybe in my parents day they were somehow relevant and young and fashionable Mm. and and they're still here because that's their job you you, it was it was just this kind of confusion Mm. at least from the late eighties onwards, there was a bit of a turnover, yeah. and people didn't just stay there for fucking ever mm. yeah. doing the job. Yeah, yeah, it used to be in reverse, didn't it? Because people like Savile and Noel Edmonds, their next move would be to do kids' true. stuff. Yeah, very true. You know, swap shop. Jim will fix it. And Mike Reed, of course, Saturday Superstore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now it's gone the other way around. The good thing you can say about um, children's TV presenters is that they're not trying to be cool for the most part. And there's that desperation that I just find really exhausting on the part of a lot of a lot of these, uh, you know, the kind of the old guard. Or they're trying to be self-deprecating, but they're trying to be cool. And it's just so knackering. They're just they're, they're very hands up who likes me about themselves. And um, you know, yes. somebody like Anthea Turner, Andy Crane actually is is um, I'd forgotten. I did I did think he was really good at it. He was just sort of really natural. But mm. yeah, I've never. I mean, look, you know how I feel about this. The one true presenter at top of the pots for me is Julian Cope, and he only did it the one time. Mm. <laughs> it was the best day ever. <laughs> we are greeted by a blast of the Wizard by Paul Hardcastle with graphics of dissected guitars, saxophones, cassette tapes, and vinyl, but not CDs. Before settling upon the non-more 80s logo of Top of the Pops, which I happen to be wearing right now on a badge given to me by Gavin Hogg of the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the Smash Hits podcast. They do what we do with Top of the Pops to to Smash Hits. So, you know, when you finish listening to us, chuck them a tab. It's, It's kind of caught somewhere between Tron 
an asteroid the graphics yes. isn't it and it's very basic 3d and the 3dness is overdone because yeah. it would have been novel at the time mm. so yeah we are we are spinning in in black space through these kind of blocky notional representations of as you say cassette tape saxophone guitar record and mm. so on and i guess i mean it's, it's it's hard to be sure at this distance but um i would have been impressed at the time by that mm. viewers would have been impressed because yeah. at that point the idea of even owning a computer would have been like owning a mountain or a nuclear <laughs> yes. submarine or something yes like, yeah i know. think i was one year away from uh owning an, a second and amiga and you certainly couldn't do spinning saxophones on that so it's like new new stuff modern stuff Futuristic stuff spinning towards you. Yeah, exciting new stuff. Yeah, yeah boom, I, boom, I, boom. I like yeah. I like these titles. It does it does definitely engage your brain in a particular way, and it's like right, prepare to be excited by things. But saxophones in 1988. Oh well, um, as we now know, uh, thanks to friend of the podcast uh, Chris Oakley, um, the last oh, yes. the last proper saxophone solo in a pop record was in 1988. Oh, and it was the best. Um, not simply the best, just oh. the best by uh, Tina Turner. Mm, and yeah, thank you for getting that right. Previous, yeah, yeah the, it's Unless, important. Of course, you know better. Unless you know better, I want to know. I'm still, you know, he, he's done amazing work researching this, but I, I'm, I'm intrigued to know if any, any stray ones in the nineties. Yes, 90s. thank you very much, Chris. When was Curtis Steiger's? Because that was his whole thing, wasn't it? Uh, Playing the sax. Mm. That was a nineties, wasn't uh, it? I don't know. Hmm. Your host for this evening, Mike Reed who is now 41 and now a strictly weekend fixture at Radio 1, hosting Singled Out, the renamed Round Table, on Friday tea times, holding down the 10am slot on Saturday mornings between Peter Powell and Adrian Just, and manning Jimmy Savile's oldies slot on Sunday dinner times. Your other host, Simon Mayo who joined Radio 1 from Radio Nottingham two years ago and has started the year as Janice Long's replacement for the evening show, which was the old Kid Jensen slot, which is currently sandwiched between Bruno Brooks and John Peel. He's also become the new host of the school's quiz show, Pop of the Form, taking over from Mike Reed, and in 11 days' time, he will be the new host of The Breakfast Show, ripping Mike Smith down from the alpha male position of Radio 1. Oh, chaps, Simon Mayo, 29, Mike Reed, 41. Here are two people going in the opposite direction on Radio yeah. 1. Mm. Yes, they are. Yeah, I mean, Mike Reed is a ghost of a man at this point. <laughs> um, he's, he's, uh, he's, you know, as you say, he's no longer doing Saturday Superstar. He's no longer doing pop quiz, and his status as a kind of central figure in in BBC Entertainment is fading. He's still clinging on to Radio One just about, but mm. only Saturday mornings. And he's got a biker jacket oh, with the sleeves rolled God, up, yes. but the jacket is way too new and it screams a midlife crisis yes yes isn't it and um and yeah you you can sense the simmering tension here there's no rapport no no chemistry it's it's very much you say your bit and i'll say mine Mm. um a bit like when me and taylor are on sharp music (laughs) Um, he he knows if you and taylor are simon moe i might read who's who (laughs) no come on on. sarah who's who no uh I'm not going there. <laughs> but he knows that Mayo is the rising star. He's the younger man, as you say, he's 29. Mm. And at this point... The mayonnaise Mayo, rises to the top. The mayonnaise rises to the top, yeah. Um, 
you know, as you say, he's doing the evening slot, but only two months later, he's being given Mike Reed's old job on breakfast. That's got to hurt. Mm. That's got to hurt Mike Reed. Mm. Um, I mean, Mayo is not particularly cool himself. He's not like a hip young guy. He's in a bad beige jacket with the sleeves rolled up. But the crucial thing is Mayo... And I, I don't have any problem with Simon Mayo, by the way. I think he's all right. I've got, you know, I've got no uh, animosity towards him. But one thing that's in his favour here, he isn't desperate to appear cool. No. Um, and Reed is. Yeah. When Reed comes out with his car crash, oh, fucking non, non-wise cracks, Mayo has the decency to look embarrassed for him. Mm. Um, May- Mayo's whole shtick um, is being the everyman that... The Coric role, as he calls it on the film show he does on Five Live with Mark Kermode. Yeah. And he's already doing it here, really, because he's... I feel that if you just look at his expression when Mike Reed makes a non-joke, that um, Mayo is channeling the audience's yes. mixture of discomfort and pity yes. towards Mike Reed. Yeah. I mean, it is tough to be the straight man if if the other guy is not <laughs> funny. You know, if the other guy is not... <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough gig, man. But like, um, uh, and it, and yeah, it is hard to do when when you're you're wearing your your mum's jacket. I mean, Mike Reed has objectively yes. the better jacket here, even if it's not really his jacket in any meaningful sense. Mm, but yeah. you know, it, it's 1988. What are you going to do? Uh, I mean, I don't mind. I don't mind Simon Mayer at all. I mean, you know, very yeah. much like the condiment that bears his name, sort of bland but reliable with. Many applications. Yes. One of the few former Radio 1 DJs and Top of the Pops so who isn't making an arse of himself these days and actually carved a really nice niche for himself. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got he's the sort of presenter that I prefer in that he's got that slight dryness. It's that, you know, very sort of English, kind of very slight kind of, hmm, without being fully kind of eye-rolly cynical or mugging. He doesn't mug, you know, he's not a mugger. So, you know, I mean, he's not, he's no. not John Peel, but nor is he Noel fucking Edmonds, you know, and... I mean, he's not Kid Jensen either, but, you know, who is? So, you know, I'll take it. And Reed is mugging like a motherfucker here, isn't he? Oh, yes. You know, from the very start, he's he's, uh, shouting in a Cockney accent and waving banknotes around, and he goes top of the wads and promises the show will have loads of singers mainly tenors tenors mm. oh. and and it, it took it took me a while to realize what he's doing which we're going to come to mm. because right it falls into that pattern of reed saying something that has the shape and the rhythm of a joke but isn't actually a joke he's so desperate to be funny but he can't carry it off never could never no really. Well, I mean, the thing about Simon Mayo is every time he was on Top of the Pops, he always looked like the central character in a, a, a young person's bank account advert. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And as is the style of the of this era, he has got his sleeves rolled up on his horrible baggy thing. Mm. But rolling up the sleeves of a leather jacket, Sarah, this has been on my mind ever since I wanted to do this episode. Your thoughts, rolling up the sleeves we, on a leather jacket. We have discussed this before, I believe. You, you made quite an impassioned defence of the rolling the sleeves up thing with I'm, uh, I'm against pro. David's opinions. Yeah, I'm 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 fully I'm I'm fully for it. Even a leather jacket. Even a leather jacket. The thing with the leather jacket is you don't it's oh, not man. it's a different No, no, no. It's, it's all in the technique, right? Because you're not rolling up the sleeves. It's more of a shunt. It's just a kind of light shunt. So you don't roll it all the way up. So you're just exposing. Yes. It's quite nice because it's, you know, the leather jacket is kind of the, um, you know, the, the uniform of the, of the, you know, the, the rebel and the malcontent and everything. And you're giving it a little bit of a, um, you know, a slightly feminine edge by exposing, exposing your wrist and just a, a whisper of, of forearm. 
you know so you're you're just taking mm. the edge off off the off the style a little bit and you know that is a good I'm I don't think everyone can get away with it I I think certain people can get away with it Jacko in the beat it video can get away yeah, with it yeah. that that red that red leather with jacket zips, yeah, which yeah. pushed up it's, oh god that I lo- I wanted that jacket I so had bad. a t-shirt of that jacket like printed on the t-shirt <laughs> it was great Oh my god um Simon Lebon can get away with it as well Yeah yeah, yeah. but Mike Reed not so No much. no I mean oh, Mike Reed it looks like you know if the hairy bikers were vets instead of um cooks <laughs> that's what they'd be wearing the hairy yeah, vets like he's just got off his bike and he's about to plunge his fist up a cow's ass. it's not right and also with a leather jacket and particularly with a new leather jacket it would take a lot of effort to roll that up yeah there's no that you can't you can't fight it too too much yeah and if it's if it's new and it's all kind of you know sort of creaky still but no we've got we've we do have a, a quite a, an assortment of various vintages of leather jacket in this house and uh, i mean my 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 bloke um he he mm. does it partly because his, his arms are slightly uh slightly longer than the average so he you know and you don't want right. the kind of you don't want it to just naturally end just above your wrist because it looks dark doesn't so. want to show wrist no just not, it's got to be wrist and a couple of inches of forearm that's like you know that's the yeah. ideal so yeah and i'll do it as well i've got one that that is more comfortable to just sort of shunt up a bit and I mean, obviously, women are yeah. kind of we can we can get away with stuff without people like us going, "Ooh, what you're doing? You're rolling up your sleeves and things." Yeah. But still, you know, I think it's I, I think it's fine. It's partly you you've got to. It's like anything. You have to just be able to carry it off with with a sort of mm. what you know, and and that is kind of laugh proof. You know, you're not going to get someone going, look yeah. at you with your stupid jackets. Like, what? Which is the first thing that came out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, but that's because... this episode. That's because, bless him, Mike Reed cannot pull off a leather jacket, especially not... This is a, you know, this is kind of close to the platonic ideal of a leather jacket, I think, with the, you know, with that that collar. Even though he's, he's popped the collar, but, you know... But but that's that's a good leather jacket, but not on him because like he's, he's Eric Cantona. <laughs> <laughs> but he's you know he's wearing it like a like a suit jacket really because you know he's wearing it like a blazer mm. which which you can't do so. But um, I don't know. I mean, I have the most rudimentary fashion sense. I'm kind of skidding inexorably towards just wearing one sort or another of pajamas indoors, outdoors, whatever. As I think a lot of people are at the minute. But you know, um, <laughs> leather jackets. I would say you are allowed. To shunt them up. Sarah, as rudimentary as you may consider your fashion sense to be, I think you're allowed to have a go at Mike Reed. <laughs> I think you are still, you are in a position that you can do that. Trust. Oh, is it yes. punching, what is it, punching down or is it punching across? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But Just as long as you punch him, though. Just as long as you punch him. He wouldn't feel it in that jacket. It looks pretty tough to me. I, I couldn't help noticing that there are many, many leather jackets in this episode. Oh, yes. Pops, possibly funny. more than are in Sarah B's house. <laughs> yes. So, um, in a way, you know, Mike Reed with his leather jacket there, is foreshadowing the entire show, isn't he? Mm. So many jackets. Yes. He's with it. Oh. He's with it. Definitely with it. <laughs> <laughs> Oi, you! Shut your mouth and watch this show! I think what Mike is trying to say is he's got a pretty good programme coming up. We've got loads of acts, we've got loads of singers, mainly tenors, on top of the woods! In other words, on top of the pops at number four, Harry Enfield with an awful lot of money. Oh, you! Shut your mouth and look at my wall! This is a journey into money. Loads of money. Arnold, 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 it's loud to money. Read! 
in midlife crisis sunglasses, a black t-shirt and a leather jacket with the sleeves rolled up, immediately launches into an appalling impersonation of the comedy sensation of the moment, while Mayo, in a horrible puffy taupe suit jacket with the sleeves (laughs) also rolled up, and a navy and white hoopy top, acts as straight man, while assorted kids who have been lacerated by the late 80s stick (laughs) surround them and whoop and gurn. The fucking crowd, man. Yeah. They're, oh my god they're yeah. the squares aren't they the squares it's the invasion of the squares because <laughs> you know in, in previous Top the Pops is fr- earlier in the 80s we might moan about zoo wankers or the people who look like they wanted to be zoo wankers yeah. fucking clothes horses and show ponies yeah. people who look like they've been only just turned away from the Blitz Club but desperately wanted to get in and you know mm. all those sort of people fucking bless them at least they were going for it yes. trying something this yeah, lot yeah. with their fucking waistcoats and their floppy hats and just kind of grey and beige and just yeah. oh god they're, they're neither fashionable nor unfashionable they're just sort of there yeah fucking hell they're like the extras in the Who Me YTS advert Right, you know the one where um, one of them kicks a can about, and then Graham Taylor leans out the window and signs him <laughs> up, or for something. I don't know. <laughs> Fucking lies. Yeah. While Reed wears a half smug, half embarrassed smile at his own shitness, Mayo introduces us to the first act, who's just had their catchphrase ruined. It's loads of money doing up the house by Harry Enfield. Created by Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Higson for Harry Enfield in 1988, Loads of Money was a plasterer who was based on Spurs fans who would wave £10 notes at away fans from the north. After making his debut on the Channel 4 comedy show Friday Night Live in February of this year, Loads of Money immediately took off, working both as a satire on rampant C2 Thatcherism or as a blatant celebration of the southern boom, depending on which side of the fence you were. As the latest series of Friday Night Live, which had practically turned into the show with loads of money on it, wound down at the end of last month, Enfield cashed in with a novelty single on Mercury Records with the assistance of Crunch Groove, one of the pseudonyms of William Orbit. It entered the charts last week at number 17, and this week it soared 13 places to number 4, and here are Enfield, Whitehouse and Higson, in the studio. Number fucking four. <sighs> Where do we start with this? Oh, man. I mean, in three months, loads of money's absolutely blown up across the UK. He's just been the guest reviewer in the latest issue of Smash Hits, where he gives the following review for single of the century, loads of money, doing up the house. This is the best record ever made. It's exactly like Beethoven, except without all that classical music rubbish and disco instead. Okay, so musically, if you can say that, let's just get that out of the way. I mean, it's not, is it? It's sort of, it's like a heap of fragments. It's just, Mm. it's very, very hard work. I mean, it's like a sort of musical aneurysm and you sort of get what it's getting at. But but why? But why? It is just, you're kind of like, why Why have you done this? Especially when I discovered it was William Orbit, which I didn't realise. It's like, what the fuck? Mm. William Orbit responsible for one of one of my favourite records ever, Fascinating Rhythm, mm. you know. And it's like, what mm. What are you doing, man? You know, I know everyone's got to make money and stuff, but it, yeah, it's very odd, isn't it? And especially for like, you know, the, the first, you know, the opener of, of A Top of the Pops. Mm. It's so strange. And you, you know that it's satire and you know what it's satirising and you can kind of, put all that together but 
again, you're just left with this really empty feeling of like, what? Why? Why has everyone involved done this? Yeah. What's the sequence of events? What's what's the what decisions led to this? You know? Yeah, it's like you've ordered pump up the volume by Mars on Wish dot com, isn't it? <laughs> Follows the rules of 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 dance music of the time. Um, I mean, the samples and pastiches are just layer upon layer. So you you start off with the paid in full remix. Uh, you know, this is a journey into money. You really got me. Uh, hey, big spender. Uh, an mm. actual sample of money, money, money by ABBA. Mm. You know, a year after the jam sampled Dancing Queen and got the fucking arses ripped off them for it. Mm. Money makes the world go around from Cabaret. Buffalo Girls, you know, all this scratching's making me rich. They've got the baseline or whatever to money. That's what I want. Uh, and, of course... I know you got soul and then sing a song of sixpence. So it's lots of songs about money just mashed together. So, you know, mm. he, getting William Orbit in is a good move because he is obeying the rules. It is a, a, a dance record. Well, sort of, but Silence. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to defend it. I fucking, it's awful. No, it, it, it's, it's really grim. I mean, and the thing is that it, it is, it's a comedy. Well, okay, if it's a comedy song, it's more, <laughs> it's not really a song and, and nor is it especially funny. So, so why? What, what's, you know, what is this endeavour supposed to achieve? I just really got a, a real kind of injection of that to the brain. It's quite, quite depressing. I mean, the thing is that, this isn't even the low point of this episode, for fuck's sake. No. But um, not by a long shot. Um, oh, but, God. But it, it is that there are, you know, as we will, we will speak of later, something that does something very similar, but but somehow worse. Um, but it's, oh, God. So I was making my notes and it's like, oh, it, it's trying to, what's it doing? It's trying, it's sending up stuff like S-Express. And I was like, oh, God, sending up. It's such a horrible phrase and it, it's appropriate, you know, because it's not, it's not. It's Essex Express, isn't it? Well, yeah, but you see that, that you just pulled out of your ass is actually more clever and, and amusing than anything in this kind of three minute upset. I mean, the BBC would have been very happy to have the, the top comedy star at the moment on their channel. So they've pushed the boat out somewhat by actually allowing the video to be played in the top corner. Oh, yeah. At the same time. Oh, yeah, they kind of cut to and fro, don't they? There's lots of prop money being thrown about which apparently has been especially printed up and features loads of money with his arm around the queen who's winking at us and it's got bank of wads of dosh printed across the top so yeah as far as production standards go bbc have pushed the boat out a bit on here i think Mm. paul whitehouse is there just kind of looking gormless i guess he's supposed to be i don't know what the idea is there he's supposed to be just out of lance the the yts lad oh right okay Uh, i don't know um, but you know, and they start kind of actually destroying um, some mm. decks with with saws yeah. and 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 then finally a colossal comedy hammer. Yes, a really really big one that looks quite solid. And mm. you know, I'm I, it is on record that I I love the use of props on on top of the box, but but not like this, mm. <laughs> not like this. You're just wantonly destroying things for no reason. And the idea is that it's sort of it's going, hey, you all know what this is, and you know you all know how absurd it is when people mm. go on top of the pops and all they have is decks and they're just dancing and like miming, I mean, even though everyone did. Yeah. There's an, a slightly sour element of superiority in, in the whole thing, but it doesn't land in any way. It's like, it's supposed to be subversive, isn't it? But mm. at this point, it's just, it's not going to land and loads of money has become kind of stripped, I think, by now of its sort of satirical punch if it ever had any in the first place. Mm. So... Yeah, I'm just depressing myself talking about it. Please, someone else say something. 
Simon, <laughs> you, I mean, you didn't have a telly, so what did you know of loads of money? Well, you couldn't avoid it, even if you didn't have a telly. It was just this huge cultural fact. Mm. You would run into it somewhere at somebody else's house mm. or on somebody's T-shirt, or it was just everywhere. Mm. Um, I've got to say, um, watching this performance is the least fun I've had doing a chart music. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and I, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry to say that, but, um, you know, because I, I love recording this podcast with you guys, but this felt like fucking work. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. I, think yeah. I hate this. I hate this more than anything we've covered on chart music. And I include in that B.A. Robertson and Oasis um, and, and anyone, really. Jesus. First of all, Harry Enfield himself is despicable right um we've seen that as recently as this year mm. when he was defending the use of blackface i mean that's oh, the hill he? he's decided to die on oh, oh yeah oh, you know sake. do you remember when um when things were being removed from from netflix and so on like like little britain and uh, oh, various yeah. other things d- due to um having used blackface well he uh, harry enfield went on radio for um defending having done that himself um he, of course, mm. uh, black-faced up as Nelson Mandela. Yes. He, he portrayed Mandela as selling drugs and alcopops to kids. Mm. And he, his argument was, well, that was the stereotype of black people. And he was subverting that by basically repeating the fucking stereotype, mm. right? And that's exactly what he's doing here. That's exactly what he's doing here. Um, in... 1988, we didn't have the word chav and we didn't have the word cosplay, but this is chav cosplay. Mm. Um, that's, that, that's, that's what it is. And, um, when, when you get things like this, um, I guess like, you know, Lee Nelson, Vicky Pollard, things like that, um, it always feels like punching down mm. to me. Um, it always leaves a sour taste. I suppose there are a, the odd thing that I'll give a pass to, like Paul Calf, because you know, yeah, yeah. Steve Coogan's not posh himself, and Ali G because it's done with intelligence. But I just think that the the supposed um, satire going on here just does not work, and never did from the beginning. It's, it's you know, it's meant to be a satire of Thatcherite avarice, but mm. as you said yourself, Al, it was taken by a lot of people as a celebration mm. of that. I've gone it syndrome. Now anybody could have seen that coming, right? Um, obviously, loads of people. Uh, loads of people. Sorry, it's the only time I'm going to do that. Many people thought it was something to aspire to. Yeah. But Harry Enfield is an educated man, expensively educated Mm. man. He should have seen this coming. And I'm always saying this about things like Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen or Rockin' in the Free World by Neil Young, that if you write some kind of big fist-pumping patriotic chorus, if people don't read the small print and don't read... The, the verses that's on you mm. it really is and i think i think it's on harry enfield here that uh, everybody just took it as a celebration of being a kind of crass newly minted essex man in a tracksuit mm. um and that that whole thing you mentioned al of him basing it on cockney fans football fans waving wads of money at liverpool supporters well th- this only escalated it people were doing it even more mm. on the back yeah. of this people in football stadiums were shouting loads of money yeah. and waving wads of money at, you know, Liverpool supporters if they were from London or something like that. I'm guessing you never saw Saturday Live or Friday Night Live as it was by this point. Oh, maybe once or twice, but I, I didn't like it, you know. He did that kebab shop man as well, didn't he? Like, mm. Yeah, and that was dodgy as fuck as well. I mean, oh, God. Channel 4 moved it this year 
to uh, Friday nights, and which practically invented their Friday night comedy strand. And it was mm. it was also a repository for the sort of bands that Channel Four sorts liked. You know, this series that has just ended featured Voice of the Beehive, Fergal Sharkare, Hue and Cry, The Communards, Magnum, Madness, The Primitives. Roachford, Eurythmics, The Christians, Squeeze, Hothouse Flowers, and Was Not Was. And a month ago, they got the Pogues on to do Streets of Sorrow and Birmingham Six, but, oh, they cut to an ad break without telling them before they got to the Birmingham Six bit. Right, yeah. So, yeah, so mm. in this context, I mean, Ben Elton introduced loads of money in the first episode of the new series, saying, oh, you know, we've moved to Friday night. Um, we've got a new set. Oh, one of the plasterers who came in, he's got something to say. And that's how loads of money was introduced as as practically a hate figure for Channel 4 sorts. Yeah, so everyone can laugh at the idea of plasterers, you know, because they're so common, and mm. but, but they've got a bit of money. And Enfield's idea of how to portray that is to jut his chin out and talk in a horrible mangled estuarine accent and to walk in a sort of bandy-legged way. Because that's what he thinks working class people are, you know? And and just his, his idea of hip hop is equally patronizing and, and outdated. You've got to remember by this point, we'd already had fucking comedy hip hop records like Wicker Rap by the Evasions and that, that uh, John McEnroe one that I can't remember the name of now. The Brat. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, oh, Morris Major and the Minors, a Minor and the Majors, whatever it was. And, you know. All... Which also came from Saturday Live. Right. Right. So there you go. So and, and the yeah. the thing is with this one is that Enfield and his I guess he, he and William Orbit, but um, whoever whoever else was responsible for this for a start they conflate house music and hip hop. It's as if the only thing they've heard is the Beatmasters. Mm. You know, they just think hip hop and house mm. is the same thing. Oh, it's all that stuff. It's all that kind of like yeah. like fake machine music that young people like. Let's sort of jumble it all together and make make yeah. fun of it. And it's all a bit of a cod. Yeah, yeah. And and these are people like B. A. Robertson and like Jonathan King who hate pop. Right? Mm. They they certainly hate hip hop and house. They they disdain it and they think it's easy. Right? This record implies that it's a piece of piss to make a hip-hop record. But ironically, it only serves to show that it isn't, you know. Uh, it's more of a pastiche of house music than hip-hop, I'd say. Well, it's both, because you've got the bit, all yeah. the scratchings making me rich, and then the DJ yeah. runs his needle across the grooves, not inside them. Um, so, mm. you know, he thinks it's self-evident to any decent, right-minded person that hip-hop is A, easy, and B, shit, Right. Mm. And I think that was a prevalent view. It really was. It was really mm. hard to fight that off in my circles, because if you were into kind of alternative rock music, there's a lot of that among indie fans. This is why the war broke out at NME, because a lot of people thought hip hop wasn't even music. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it really is showing it, it, it's saying so much more about them than, than they would have wanted to. You know, it, it's very, very complacent. It's very patronising. You know, the entire thing. And it's like, oh, we, we are, you know, we will effortlessly skewer this thing that we haven't really cared to learn anything about, you know. I mean, if you're going to satirise something, there needs to be like a base level of respect for it in order to know enough about it to be that precise, you know. And obviously there's nothing precise about this. It's just it's just a kind of mush of of, mm. of snottiness and, and self-congratulation. Mm. Um, I mean, I do think if you're making a thing, whether it's comedy, drama or whatever, you can't allow yourself to be too cowed by the worst possible interpretation of it. You know, you can't go, who's the most literal minded shitbag? 
that will have access to this work and how will they interpret it? You can't kind of cow to that. However, I'm not sure that really applies here because, yeah, you are walking straight into it. And irony only works if everyone buys into it. It's, you know, mm. much like social distancing, in fact. Like, it only works. I can social distance from you, but then if you don't do the same thing, then it's broken mm. and I have broken it because you've broken it. So, you know, this is kind of recursive collapse of, of whatever patina of irony there was on this is just in this context they've just they've just dispensed with it really mm. it's like oh well you know people like this and who cares why they like it and let's just barrel ahead and get to number what number is this four. at four fuck me four let's get to number four also um i discovered that um higson and whitehouse did get royalties from this record but they didn't have a formal contract mm. They lost out on the rights to the loads of money character, even though they co-created it. So they just got a fee in the first place. And then Harry Enfield went on and did adverts for like Seconda and stuff. And half the royalties from this went to ABBA anyway. Yes. And then Harry (laughs) Enfield. So, I mean, there's kind of meta ironies in that Harry Enfield going on to do those cheeky adverts. Oh, it's cheeky. I mean, it's it's proto-bants, isn't Mm. it, really? And it's that horrible thing where you now get anything unpleasant or wrong-headed or outdated or generally unhelpful is going to get waved away by arts bants and then it's on you because the failure of of humor is on is on you oh if you can't take a joke yeah. can't take a joke and i've had a fucking bellyful of that to be honest and there is a thing like this for me later but orders of magnitude <laughs> worse it's like an attempt to drill down to the center of the mm. earth Right about this time, he's he's asked the Sun for a retraction after they used a picture of loads of money on the front page to promote their bingo game without his permission. And <laughs> the Sun responded by printing a story called Loads of Monies, where Stan Boardman, Jimmy Cricket and Max Bygraves told him how lucky he was to be promoted by the Sun. And they also issued an editorial which read, Shut your mouth and look at our wad. Seriously, we believe you should buy yourself a decent sense of humour. This could well be the stage where alternative comedy stops being alternative. But at the moment, it's still them and us. And Harry Enfield's still on the side of us. Hang on, is the implication that he uh, objected to being on the front of the sun uh, politically or just that he wanted to be paid for it? I'm not sure. I'm guessing, this is pre-Hillsborough, but I'm guessing comics of his status didn't want to be associated with the sun. Yeah, well, he did plenty enough damage without needing Mm. their help. Honestly, right, I'm not exaggerating that loads of money is in the sort of top five, maybe top three things in the late 80s that made me feel alienated from British culture, just made me Mm. despise this country and Mm. made me glad when I got out for a year when I I fucked off to France in late 88 Mm. and it's just good to get away from this fucking cesspit that it was becoming because Mm. of stuff like this, stuff Mm. like this being celebrated and aspired to, which, Mm. just to repeat myself, but Enfield should have seen that coming. Maybe he did and he didn't give a shit, that's the thing. Exactly, he didn't give a shit and he, he sold loads of videos videos but he did yeah solos of vhs's and t-shirts and whatever else off off the back of it Mm. Mm. i mean the thing that would have offended me at the time is that what's this shit doing on why don't you put some proper dance music on but that's exactly it al it's it's a given for this posh cunt that hip-hop is rubbish and i would imagine a lot of people at the bbc at top of the pops would have kind of agreed with him so Mm. they were happier to put Mm. uh, by the way not one but two 
actually not 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 two but three uh, parody mm. hip hop records on this show than mm. than than give any kind of airtime to real hip hop. There's a direct diss in here, by the way. I don't know if you picked it up. Um, where he he, he says Derek B yeah. on your bike. Yes. Mm. Rude. Yes. <laughs> so the following week, loads of money doing up the house dropped two places to number six, and he never troubled the charts again. Good. <laughs> as it turned out, and as Sarah's pointed out, the single failed to raise a substantial amount of cash for co-creators Whitehouse and Kingston when they realised that 50% of the royalties had to go to ABBA for the money, money, money sample, and they didn't have a formal contract with Enfield, which meant he got what was left, and all revenue from an advertising campaign with Seconda Watchers later that year. After Friday Night Live was cancelled by Channel 4 and loads of money was referenced in speeches by both Neil Kinnock and Margaret Thatcher, he was killed off in March of 1989 after giving Comic Relief a massive cheque for 10p and then being knocked down by a Ford Sierra outside the BBC studios. And a year later, Enfield appeared in the sun again under the headline Bish Bosh I've Spent All Me Dosh where he revealed that he'd lost a fortune on property deals, but he became a full-on BBC man in 1990 with the sketch show Harry Enfield's television programme. I'm Bob the football, I'm Bob the football. Sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of dosh. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. What a great way to start top of the pops. Harry Enfield with loads of money. Here's a guy who doesn't need loads of money because he's got lots already. At number nine this week, Prince with Alphabet Street.
loitering around the side of the studio with the kids, including a goth girl with a ridiculous permy quiff and her mate, tells us what a great start to the show that was and that the next act is properly minted. It's Prince with Alphabet Street. We've covered Prince in chart music number 30, and this single, the follow-up to I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, which got to number 25 in December of 1987, is the lead cut from his 10th official LP, Love Sexy, which came out at the beginning of the week. It entered the charts at number 18 last week, and this week it soared nine places to number nine. And here's a sliver of the video, which features him princing about in front of some computer-generated graphics. Simon, at last, Prince, proper Prince. Can I shock you? (laughs) No, surely not. I don't love this. No? Don't you? Here's the thing, here's the thing. Of all the Prince records that are any good, Mm. it's one of the least good. It's doing an impression of a great song. Right. It seems on the surface of it to be a great three-minute, three-chord pop song. Mm. It's doing all the moves, pulling all the moves of a great pop song. Even the fact of being called Alphabet Street, you just think A, B, C, it's just simplicity and all of that. But I'm not going to say it's shaking kiss... But <laughs> but it's 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 kiss light, it's diet kiss, it's kiss zero. It's got the same trebly sound range and the same use of space and silence, um, the same very minimal production. Mm. And and don't get me wrong, right? It's 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 better than anything else in this episode of Top of the Pops by a yeah. million miles. Sorry to mm. spoiler that, but it, it <laughs> is. It's fucking Prince, right? If if I was making a mix CD, remember making mix CDs for people yeah. rather than. Yeah fucking Spotify plays. If I was making a mix CD of the best of Prince, which I have done many times for many people, mm. obviously this has to be on it because it's expected. It's it's, it's one of the biggies. Mm. But I don't love it. It leaves me a little bit cold. It's a little clunky rather than funky, I would say, uh, in places. And I probably sound like a real sort of entitled spoiled cunt for saying that because it's Prince and it's a good record, but mm. it's just not... Right, right up there. The song actually picks up in the full-length version, the album version, or the 12-inch yes. version, where you've got Cat Glover coming in, doing a rap, going, talk to me, lover, come and tell me what you taste. And mm. that line, by the way, corroborates a theory about the song, which I guess we're going to come to. Mm. And, you know, that bit of jerk your body like a horny pony. Yeah, jerk your body like yes. a horny pony. Word. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Um, that bit. Uh, obviously, yeah, um, there's a theory that, it's about cunnilingus, specifically the alphabet technique, where you mm. spell out each letter of the alphabet with your tongue. Um, I don't mm. know about that, but yeah, that bit where Cat goes, tell me what you taste, does seem to sort of back that up. Mm. It's the Lee cut from Love Sexy, which I would say the last of his run of indisputably great albums. Yes. Not that he didn't make great records after that, yeah. but he had that unbroken run, probably from his debut, but certainly from Dirty Mind, mm. right through to Love Sexy, just masterpiece after masterpiece. Mm. In, in in hindsight, also, though, Love Sexy was what I would call the start of his bullshit, right? Yeah. Because there's this whole conceptual thing going on about the battle between Christ, who is Love Sexy, and the devil, who is Spooky Electric. And some of that plays out in the extended Alphabet Street, indeed. Mm. But, they're, they're, I mean, as, as, a, as a fan, there's, there's stuff on the album that just blows my mind and sends shivers through me like um, Anastasia mm. it's just one of the greatest things just greatest piece of music of that decade greatest things he ever did the album had only come out 
two days before this episode of Top of the Pops. Did you buy it? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I probably hadn't really had a chance to digest it all yet. Two months after this Top of the Pops, I went to see him. My, my first ever Prince gig. Um, and it was the Love Sexy tour. Did you did you see him, Al, on that tour? Only on Channel 4. Oh, right, okay. So, anyway. They broadcast a gig from Germany live. Right, yeah. So, you know the whole setup that yes. he had this big sort of hydraulic open top car that he's going round and there's yes. a bed and he plays a bit of basketball and there's all, all yes. this kind of all this shit going on and it was it was just amazing mm. and also sorry if I go if, if I divert a bit in, or digress into talking about the gig and about Prince in general but no, go ahead as, as a fan um, and I was I couldn't afford to own all his records yet at that stage it's not like now you can just fucking nick it all off the internet yeah I could maybe borrow a couple of things off mates and tape them but there were holes in my knowledge of his catalogue so he starts off with erotic city which i'd never heard before it's actually the the b-side of let's go crazy 12 mm. that just blew me away For, just to open the song the song i never heard before like where the fuck did that come from and then midway through there's just him on his own with electric guitar and he plays this blinding melodic new wave guitar song solo which I'd never heard before which was When You Were Mine yeah imagine hearing that for the first time and hearing it live him in front of you and you're thinking what is, is this new where, where did this come from yeah so just just the whole experience was overwhelming I, I remember um, even getting to the gig was this weird kind of road to Damascus or pilgrimage to Lourdes kind of situation because it was a boiling hot July day and I couldn't afford public transport to get there. I was so skint. Mm. I had to walk from my then girlfriend's house, which is in Crouch End, all the way to Wembley, which if you know your London geography is a fucking long walk, actually. Mm. And I walked I walked all the way there. By the time I got there, I was like dehydrated. And uh, I, I, at the end of the gig, I thought, did I hallucinate the whole fucking thing? Because <laughs> okay. it was that good. So yeah, um, I, I've got a lot of love for Love Sexy, a lot of um, great memories associated with it because of that. Um, I think with Alphabet Street... Because he pushed the boat out artistically quite far with the Sign of the Times album, which is obviously uh, a total masterpiece, probably his, his greatest album, yeah. that, or, that or Parade, um, I think there was probably pressure to have to, to start this campaign with a hit, right? Mm. So Alphabet Street has got hit written all over it, hasn't it? Yes. Um, he uh, recorded it on in, in the festive perineum of, of 87, uh, 30th of December, just before New Year's Eve, um, Paisley Park, which he'd only just paid for and built with, you know, all, all his, I guess, Purple Rain millions. Mm. The next day, he played a benefit gig in Minneapolis for the homeless, uh, Minneapolis, uh, the Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless. He, he used mm. to do these kind of like um, benefit gigs with Miles Davis as his guest. Oh. And they uh, they played this song together. Well, mm. it, it, actually, it was part of um, the, the finale of the gig was... Um, this interminable funk jam, It's Gonna Be a Beautiful Night, which people will yes. know from from the Sign of the Times album. But quite often that would just turn into like a 20-minute, 30-minute funk jam with whatever else thrown in. And he's throwing in bits of um, Mother Popcorn and Cold Sweat by James Ooh. Brown and all kinds of stuff like that. But he throws in a bit of Alphabet Street. Now, I've listened to a bootleg of it, and I've scanned through it quite a lot, and I can't find that bit. So I don't know if it's almost unrecognisable. But yeah, um, in theory, the, the world's first appearance uh, performance of this song was with Miles Davis um, blowing hard, you know. So uh, yeah, that's that's a nice bit of history to it. I feel like I've, I've got some stuff to say about the lyrics and about the video, but I've been wanging on about it for quite a bit, so I need to let Sarah in. <laughs> that's fine. Sarah, as, as, as a 10-year-old, what's, what's Prince saying to you at this time? 
Um, I didn't. I think I didn't quite know what to make of Prince yet, but this would definitely have been a good sort of gateway to to Prince at that time because yes. it's so. It, I, it, it's such a joy. It's so playful. I mean, I, I'm sure I, I obviously I I, um, I yield to to um, Simon on his, his Prince knowledge, but for me, this is just one of the most joyous sounds I know. I mean, if it comes on anywhere. I will bust a move. I will. I have to. Mm. You know, and I, I will go on the floor and I will do the popular squirrel dance. You know, it's just that's what's going to happen. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's such, it's got this kind of, I'm sure, yeah, it is like he, he could have done this in his sleep, but it's very, it's got such a kind of positive current in it, you know. And it's, um, yeah. yeah, and of course any any suggestion of rudeness would have gone way over my head, but there's a clear and present naughtiness about it, you know. It's mm. it's really obviously rude in some way, um, but it's just very it's very happy. It's very positively charged. It's like a sort of quite an explosion of serotonin and probably other things. But you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but in terms of the video as it's placed here, I mean, after the slog of loads of money, you know, it's such an emotional roller coaster. Mm. This episode, God, yes. what are you doing <laughs> to point, it? Actually. Jesus, <laughs> and you go, yeah, it's fucking Prince, and it's such a you know, thank God. But it's such a it's a meatloaf moment, isn't it? It's like you play uh, there's you go from some yeah. horrible British sludge that is a real insult to everyone's intelligence, and then a, a flash of American brilliance for a minute and forty seconds, and then and then they just yeah. snatch it away and replace it with something mm. shitter. Um, no spoilers, but it's like oh thanks. I mean my relationship with Prince is very similar to David Bower and you know when they both died in the same year I got the same feeling oh this is fucking horrible Mm. but I know so many other people who it's gonna hurt more and Mm. I immediately thought of them I mean as I've said before when I was at college you could divide people into two camps Morrissey people and Prince people and you always wanted to be around the Prince people I was both so catch me on a good day you know like when I hang around with me (laughs) But I had a mate who just dealt me a tape of Love Sexy right away. And I had the same feeling as you, Simon. I heard this before I heard the album. I thought, oh, here we go again. And, you know, I've gone back and listened to Love Sexy uh, this past week. And, yeah, after Sign of the Times, anything's going to be a bit of a, not going to say disappointment, but, yeah, it's not grabbing me as much as, as Sign of the Times did. But, of course, before then... Uh, I'd heard the the Black Album. Yeah. And I know you had that, Simon. Yeah, I got a bootleg from Camden for 20 quid, yeah. Mm. Which was a lot of money in those days, yeah. Mm. Didn't see Prince live that year, but I did see the Sign of the Times concert, which comes out in the UK, I think, a month after this. Which Um, is weird timing, yeah. Yeah, massively weird timing. And the abiding memory of that, apart from the bit where he slides across the floor under cat's legs and uh, pulls a bloody skirt off with his teeth. <laughs> and God knows I've tried that so many times <laughs> and failed so many times. Just before the the film starts, the, it starts getting dark in the cinema and someone in the audience said, you know, everybody in the house go, Aah! and my mate who was with his girlfriend, so he was sat a, f- a few rows behind me and me other mates, just shouts, how about everybody just shut the fuck up? <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that that's that's my main reminder of the, uh, of that film. But yeah, I mean the video, all one minute and twenty seconds or whatever it is. I mean it would have seemed massively futuristic in nineteen eighty eight. But like uh, the Michael Jackson video for "You Are Not Alone," it's it's not aged well, has it? No, I stated really badly. These floating 
letters of the alphabet um, yeah. going around him. Um, I mean, first of all, just about Prince himself, he looks really beautiful. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it goes without saying. Yeah, it does. But even by his standards, he's wearing some lovely clothes. Um, mm. He's got this, this kind of mint green and black colour scheme going on. He's moved on from peach and black. He's yeah. got this mint green shirt, polka dots and, and these boots. And he's mm. going through a big polka dot phase, actually, around this time. And yeah. lovely long wavy hair, um, yes. but but the video itself just looks really cheap. Um, yes, with the floating letters of the alphabet. It's kind of like they fed Prince and a car and some legs into a word processor and then kind of sat on it. Oh, he's gone down the trocadero. <laughs> I went to look at the uh, the full version. I mean, not not very much. To be fair, not very much else happens. I mean, you've got you know, the, basically, it's a kind of Prince writhing on the floor in some tracky bottoms, emblazoned with the word Prince. Which I would, yes. I would love some of those. You know, when you've got a pair of trousers with your name on them, you know you succeeded at life. You, unless you call Joe Bloggs or Giorgio. <laughs> his mum his mum sewed that on. <laughs> it's in case he lost them at school. <laughs> he lost them so many times. Prince! Right on, like, taking up the half the thigh. You should have got some Simon with Price down the side. Oh, trust me, I've thought about it. I've actually uh, <laughs> photoshopped, um, you know, Price of the Revolution as a little kind of logo. Uh, uh, that was, I think, that was, that was my Facebook no, uh, profile pic for a while. So yeah, I mean, we've just there's a <laughs> nice selection of things, like a sort of box of chocolates of Prince. You know, Prince's best moves. You know, shot of Prince's bare chest that you should linger on for like <laughs> too long. Prince pretending to drive, and then Prince kind of actually driving. Mm. Uh, and Prince crawling after some legs, yes, and yes. heels. And, and Prince's eye with with extra eyebrow, um, and, you know. But yeah, all the all the words kind of flying about. There's messages, not hidden messages. There are sort of semi hidden messages, including yeah, um, including God, I love you. Mm. Heaven is so beautiful. Don't buy the black album. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he'll be pleased to know that I didn't because um, I got my mate to tape it for me again. So don't worry, Prince. And H is for punks. H is for punks. Yes. And he doesn't mean punks as a good thing. He doesn't think punks are cool. So his no. heroin, he's, he's basically, he, yeah, I mean, he's, he's using it in that kind of, yeah, like like sort of Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood style punks, like go ahead, punk. Yeah. yeah. There's also For the Light Dance, yeah, yeah. If You Don't Mind, and David Stubbs cried when he heard The Ugly Duckling by Mike Reed. <laughs> on uh, the YouTube video that I watched, always look at the comments because I know YouTube comments are famously a kind of, toxic bin fire but you often get really interesting stuff mm. in there and uh there are comments purportedly from the people who made the video so there's uh from three Ooh. years ago and two years ago respectively pr epstein mm. i'm the one that directed this cheesy video i was supposed to supervise the edit but time constraints and scheduling were conflicted so prince went on without me and cut it at some facility in la i remember prince had this idea to shoot this at six o'clock on a sunday evening we filmed until 6 a.m monday morning down the road i made a better God, didn't director's- he watch highway what the fuck's wrong with him? <laughs> down the road, I made a better director's cut with better contrast. I tried to post it several times, but YouTube kept taking it down because of stupid copyright infringements. Thank you, P.R. Epstein. And then, uh, yeah, and then after that, Peter Bate. Good day to you all. My, very polite. My name is Peter, and I <laughs> made this him. video with, so I guess this is, this is the guy who edited it. Um, I made this video with Prince back in the late 80s. I worked at Editel, which was one of the premier edit house in the day. He had shot all the footage at his place and showed up one Monday night with a box of tapes because he knew of my effects work. Remember, this was before the computers and software of today. I had to layer each letter in the mm. video one at a time. So, like, oh, it might fuck. look shit, but, like, loads of work went into it. 
Oh, he said, man. I enjoyed a healthy working relationship with him. A nice guy, incredibly talented. I still have other versions of the video <laughs> with more messages in it, but we felt we wouldn't get away oh. with it as much as we did. I'm so glad this is available to oh. all. Thanks. So there you go. That's Good something Lord. to dig into, isn't it? It is. Um, th- this is really interesting, right? Because I also did some reading up on, on the video. And, and what Sarah has said there corroborates a lot of what I found out. Um, it's quite an incredible story and it's very Prince. It's very Prince, this whole thing. Yeah, right? yeah. So apparently, until the last minute, despite this being the fucking lead single from his new album, mm. um, he was refusing to even shoot a video. Right, right. <laughs> just being be, being Prince, being stubborn. Then he suddenly decided he did want to make a video on a Sunday in Minneapolis in the middle of a snowstorm. Right, so he got Alan Leeds, who's one of his management team, and also the mm. brother of Eric Leeds, who plays sax on on the album, yeah. to set it up that instant. They had to shoot it that day. Just fucking now. <laughs> Do me a bit like <laughs> snowstorm, snowstorm Minneapolis on a Sunday. Eric Leeds tries telling Prince, look, you know. <laughs> You're not in Los Angeles. There, there aren't just top quality film crews on every block, no. right? He wasn't taking no for an answer. So Eric Leeds just had to be seen to be making an effort. He rang absolutely everyone in the kind of broader Minnesota area who was up to the task. And <laughs> a lot of them either didn't get back to him or they were snowed in or they just oh. refused, right? So eventually Eric Leeds has to start flicking through his roller decks for... And I don't, I don't want to sort of... Uh, uh, say this about the, the the nice gentleman that Sarah was just quoting, but the second and third rate people. <laughs> but he did oh. find this up and coming guy who may have been uh, one of those two. I well, must have been one of those two uh, people who was desperate for a break. So as for a location, the best thing they could come up with was a local cable TV station. All the <laughs> oh. all the effects done on blue screen. Um, and yeah, they they didn't start filming till eleven at night. Okay, no. The the director had to add, uh, as we've heard, all the, all the lettering, including that the that the message about not buying the black album and and that anti drugs, ages for punks thing. And this is after Prince had done all his prancing and writhing about. He'd gone home. He'd gone home and just <laughs> left left him to it. Yeah. Offer some sex. <laughs> yeah, probably. Th- that's why it looks like it cost about fifty pence, even by right. uh, even by eighty standards. The other Jeez. thing I was going to say about it is is the, the the one minute and twenty seconds or whatever forty seconds that we get here. There's just a really heartbreaking bit in it as a fan. It's when, when I think the first thing we see him do, he falls into the splits and then does mm-hmm. reverse splits without using his hands, just springs back up again yes. in fucking high heel boots. Mm-hmm. So that ultimately is what got him on the buprenorphine, the opioids, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, and, and I, I get that when I see any Prince footage now. There, there was a gig that got shown during lockdown of, of uh, uh, one of his gigs from the, the Purple Rain era, and he just jumps off a high speaker stack down onto the stage without even bending his legs. And you just think, oh, fucking hell, man. Oh, no. no no wonder he was in such pain towards the end and he, he got addicted to opioids. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's weird how, how these things become tainted with a bit of sadness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The lyrics, though, right? Um, so I'm going down to Alphabet Street. I'm going to crown the first girl that I meet, right? Mm. I mean, leaving aside the the oral sex bit um uh, uh and, and what and what he means by crown exactly the yeah. first girl that he meets right yeah I, really i mean i i i know people reckon <laughs> i i know a lot of people say prince had quality control issues and, <laughs> and, and 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 there's your evidence so what he turns the corner in in his in his dad's thunderbird right yeah. he turns the corner into alphabet street and he literally starts chatting up 
the first girl that he meets. Oh, you know, Princess Chagot. What, what if it's Bella Emberg or something? <laughs> I mean, oh, that'd be great, though. But he's always gone on about how looks don't matter. You know, no, not yeah. your body, your mind, you fool, and, and you don't have to be beautiful, etc. But you never heard about him in real life dating Hatchet Face from the John Waters movies, did you? Do you know what no. I mean? So uh, I, d- I don't know if I believe him there. And also, just the whole thing of him driving around in the car, hassling women. It, I mean, he's he's not he's not a scrub in the passenger side, but he is still driving around bothering women, and I, I, I don't know if that's cool. Yeah, but, but Simon, he's going to talk so sexy, she'll want him from it's, his head to his it's feet. All right. it, it's all right, though. Like, it's not real. It's not real. It's not real, Bryce. It's all right. It's <laughs> no actual women no. or legs were harmed in the making of this song or video. Can I stop worrying? I can stop worrying about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Stand down, stand down. I appreciate your allyship. <laughs> your allyship is noted. And appreciated. Well, these days you have right. to be performatively uh, ally-like, don't you? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's where the money's at. But he did describe it, I believe, as an oral cartoon, and it definitely has that kind of Tex Avery thing about it of like, I'm going to drive mm, yeah. to Alphabet Street, I'm going to take off one of my dainty little high-heeled shoes, and I'm going to theatrically bop myself in the head with it while howling. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I I don't know. Has anyone suggested? So okay, so maybe it's about oral sex. Okay, that that's that stacks up. Especially because uh, the uh, in the long version, the recitation of the alphabet at the end misses out the G. Coincidence? Mm-hmm. Don't think so. Um, Why wouldn't I, I, you do I the G know. though? Because he's already on the G. Uh, yeah, right is Ingrid Chavez doing that? It's bit, Ingrid Chavez, it? yeah. Um, so maybe it's like um, the man with two brains, and and her brain's been put in a glass jar that's been it's it's been heated too much, and and they cooked her G's. They cooked her G's. Man. Why the inhumanity? The other theory is that Alphabet Street apparently is uh, it's a strip of road in Minneapolis. There, there it is. I was just going to say it links up twenty six streets named from A to Z. Uh, but we don't know which one precisely because there are seven streets like that in Minneapolis. Oh, so okay. it's not really about noshing, it's about roadworks. Well, <laughs> yeah. it's about, so okay, he's not actually, he's he's having to, you know, pull over the car a few times just, just because there's stuff in the way. Um, no, but Alfred, what, if it's yeah. a street of, you know, ladies of the night and then the first girl that I meet is going to be of a certain standard. I don't know. Yeah. Oh my god! What the fuck is this podcast? But do you know, like, if it's if it's the notorious Alphabet Street where all the women come to ply their wares, then you know he's probably going to mm. luck out. He, he yeah. doesn't have to be picky. Why can't you just do a song called "I Like Licking Fanny"? <laughs> Jeff Sex would have done that. He don't give a toss. Yeah. I mean, he probably did. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> now, I know we don't like going off on tangents on chart music, but about ten years ago, my mate bought an ass in Nottingham off this nice old couple and um you know they moved in and started doing it up and the living room was just layer upon layer of manky 70s wallpaper so they start stripping it off and they get to the end and on the wall in paint in graffiti in massive letters were the words (laughs) i like eating fanny tony (laughs) Now, Tony was the, the bloke in this nice old couple, and they'd only just moved up the road, got a bungalow or something, and she came round to pick up some bits and bobs. And my mate was in two minds whether to show her or not, but she did in the end, because, you know, you got to, aren't you? And um, the woman looked at it, and she looked at my mate and said, oh, he must have done that in 1968 when we moved in. And then she looked back at it, and then she looked back at my mate again and said, 
Well, he never told me. <laughs> so there you go. Prince could have performed in front of that. Yeah. Saved himself a lot of money and a lot of effort. I think, I mean, subtext is, is, is a thing, you know, that apparently Ameri- for, for all that Americans aren't supposed to be that subtle, you know, they're definitely, in this episode mm. of Top of the Pop so far, it's in terms of subtlety and subtext, it's America won, Britain nil. Yeah, but Prince had his moments of being very direct and I expect that yeah. somewhere maybe on the crystal ball or the uh, the vault old friends for sale or one of those like obscurities compilations there is indeed i like licking fanny <laughs> <laughs> so the following week alphabet street dropped two places to number 11 although love sexy would enter the lp chart the following week at number one the follow-up Glam Slam would only get to number 29 for two weeks in July and he'd have to wait a year for his next UK top 10 hit when Bat Dance got to number two. And four years later, he got uh, loads of money when Arrested Development used the word Tennessee in their single of the same name without clearing it and his lawyers demanded and got a flat fee for $100,000. They were quite nice about it, though. They waited until it had, like, been successful and stuff, and then, you know... And apparently he was very nice about it later, but, yeah, he still... You know, he, he was like, yeah, that's fine, I, I like the track, but also it was a 100 grand, so, you know. Mm, yeah. I mean, he could have demanded a percentage. He he, he was a mm. bit like James yeah. Brown in, in that he, he didn't like hip-hop to begin with. He didn't trust it, um, mm. you know. Uh, he, he thought it was all just, you know, stealing talent from real musicians like him. Uh, I think he sort of changed his tune very belatedly on that. But, mm. but um, yeah, that probably explains a little bit why he sent in the legal boys. Alphabet Street, like Sesame Street, only with more letters. And now here comes our first look at the charts, part one. A new entry at number 40, Heart and What About Love. And a new entry at 39, Billy Ocean and Calypso Crazy. Opera Huzza enters at 38 with Imninalu. A new at 37, Debbie Gibson and Out of the Blue. Also out, out of reach, the Primitives this week standing at number 36. New in at 35, Poison, Nothing But a Good Time. Pebbles and their girlfriend are down to 34. Next new entry is there at 33, Somewhere in My Heart, Aztec Camera. Brenda Russell's Piano in the Dark this week is at 32. And Belinda Carlisle is in at 31, Circle in the Sun. <laughs> Wonderful, brilliant, mega superb, all words that have been used to describe our next band, making a debut on Top of the Pops. They are fabulous. At number 23, supporting Fleetwood Mac, The Adventures, Broken Land, yes! <laughs> Reed and Mayo, now realigned, run down the chart from 40 to 31 before Mayo, flanked by two blonde women and a pig man in teal who keeps whooping for no reason whatsoever, tells us about a band who he claims has been described as wonderful, brilliant, mega, superb. 
As he and his minions rush off to the other side of the balcony in excitement, we discover that it's the adventures with Broken Land. Formed in Belfast in the early 80s, the adventures were fronted by Terry Sharp, who appeared on Top of the Pops in September of 1979 as the lead singer of Star Jets, whose single War Story got to number 51 before they changed their name to Tango Brigade and split up after a flop single. After a stint as the fill-in lead singer of the Angelic Upstarts, Sharp returned to Belfast and formed The Adventures, who were signed to Chrysalis Records in 1984 and hooked up with a manager called Simon Fuller. Although they bagged a support slot on Tears for Fears 1985 World Tour, their first four singles languished in the wrong end of the top 100, and they spent the next two years wriggling out of their Chrysalis deal, signing to Elektra, and working on their second LP. This is the lead cut from that LP, The Sea of Love, and is the follow-up to Two Rivers, which got to number 96 in October of 1985. It's been given a massive push by Electra and loads of airplay. It began a slow pull up the charts in late March. It finally entered the top 43 weeks ago. And this week it's up seven places from number 30 to number 23. And two days before they support Fleetwood Mac on the European leg of their world tour, here they are on the top of the pop stage at last. Well, me dears, as is the style of this era, the band picks woefully competent again, aren't they? I mean, the only thing that's leaping out to me is that picture of Poison where one of them's sticking up two fingers, but in an abusive way, like foreigners do when they attempt to peace sign and get it all wrong. I think Debbie Gibson leapt out at me. I can't remember the song Out of the Blue, but just the existence of Debbie Gibson and she and Tiffany mm. were very much the kind of Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus of their yes. day, but they never made it to the doing interesting stuff stage that that yeah. those two have done. These kind of germ-free adolescents that America was foisting on us, and they were very much um, sort of analogous mm. to um, the Stock Aiken Waterman stars and starlets. And um, yeah, I, I we've we've talked before about uh, how Jonathan King um, forced. Um, mm. uh, or sort of um, sped up the Americanization of Britain in the late eighties, and I, yes. I think it kind of it, it was really reaching some kind of horrific peak around this time. Yeah, nothing really stands out to me. Like you said, it is all they they've cottoned on now to the fact that you need to make the pictures good. Yes, I was quite struck by the just the beautiful hair of pebbles. Oh yeah, <laughs> filling the entire just sort of gorgeous crimped black hair, just filling the whole frame. So I I, I was just distracted by that and going, God, that's good hair. Um, I mean, generally, given this is 1988, there is it's quite a hair-filled chart. Yes, you know. primitives, lots of hair, poison, even more hair, heart, so much hair. I just loved how telling the uh, little intro and outro to the to the chart was um, about the relationship between or the non-relationship between Mike Reed and Simon Mayo because yes. Reed goes Alphabet Street like Sesame Street but with more letters, which. It's exactly what I'm talking about. It's not a joke. It doesn't mean anything. They're, they're, hang on. Sesame Street use more letters. They use the full alphabet. They they do G. <laughs> Good point. Don't, yeah. don't even try and pick it apart. And, you know, yeah, it just doesn't... No. It don't even... Okay, sorry. But, but Mayo just blanks him and he tumbleweeds him. <laughs> he fucking tumbleweeds him, which is brilliant. He just jumps in to yeah. say, let's look at the charts part one. And then when we see Mayo at the outro of it, um, 
might he's not there anymore. He's filmed below from a jaunty angle, uh, mm. which I, I guess that, that that might be Paul Ciani uh, at work there. Um, but one thing I noticed about the crowd in general, the, the, the people hanging around him, they're all these kind of hyped up gibbering idiots. They're really yes. they're really overexcited. I wondered, are they all pissed? Are they all drunk? Right? Mm. And I, I, I found an interview with Anthea Turner talking about the Paul Ciani uh, era. She says that uh, he, he turned it, told the pops, into a big party and that the team, the, the production crew, the cam- cameramen, everything, used to sort of whip everyone up, whip the audience up in, into this state of enthusiasm and, and, and that there'd be a big party in the bar afterwards. And I uh, that, oh, right. that kind of corroborates my, my sense of watching this episode, whether it's the women with frizzy blonde hair and bad hats or the men who all look like spam-faced young David Camerons. <laughs> that, you know, they, they all look fucking drunk. There's this atmosphere of just, just sort of like a pissed New Year's Eve party where people don't really mm. care if they like the record or not. It's just like, Yay! yeah. There was a guy yeah. earlier, actually, that I didn't uh, pick up on, on on the last um, intersection where he was clapping, but like not just with his hands, with his like whole forearms. <laughs> Like, <laughs> like a seal. Yeah, basically, like, like a walrus or something, like an excited walrus. It was, it was quite something. So the adventures, wonderful, brilliant, mega, superb. I mean, I know absolutely fuck all about the adventures, but thankfully Simon Mayo does. He might not be the Radio One Breakfast DJ just yet, but he's already cutting some major deals. I have in my hand a copy of yesterday's Reading Evening Post, which features his column, the unoriginally titled Simon Says. <gasps> he nicked that off you, Simon. I am going to sue. He fills his column inches laying out the red-hot pop goss on the people of Berkshire. And the lead article in this week's column is Tickle Tackle from the Tabloids. Congratulations to Irish band The Adventures, whose broken land has given them their first chart hit and who seem to do equally well with the atmospheric new album Sea of Love. However, as singer Terry Sharp told me, success has also meant papers with less integrity than this one have been making up stories about him and his long-standing girlfriend, Sarah of Bananarama. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. So long as they print the truth, said Terry. But I did one interview and they asked me how intimidating it had been to live in the shadow of a famous girlfriend. I said it had never been a problem. I think her success is great. We get invited to the best parties. But when it appeared, it said I'd confessed to years of heartbreak about living in her shadow. The unfortunate thing is that a lot of unintelligent people believe what they read in those papers, and the gap between the truth and what is printed is astonishing. I don't mind talking to responsible papers like this, but I'll never talk to Sarah to any of the tabloids ever again. Oh, the the lamestream media. (laughs) Can't believe the MSM, man. Yeah. Yeah. Fake news. Yeah. So, Terry... Or, as I'm going to call him from now on, Mr. Sarah. <laughs> he's got his hair gelled back and he's, he's wearing the sort of short leather jacket that beloved of Bross around about this time 
uh, teamed with ripped 501. So, you know, it's that look that makes him look like an extra in a bar scene in Top Gun, isn't mm. it? That's quite a sloppy ensemble, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's very soft, the leather. It's it's a, um, a lovely... Soft, Buttery. Soft brown leather blues on. It's like it's like chamois, chamois leather, that, you know, you could you could buff your family saloon car with it in the driveway mm. on, a, on, a, on a Sunday. In fact, that's what you're supposed to do to, like, really bring it out. Uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a bit. Yeah. It's a bit lovejoy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's he's not over. Um, he is one of those frontmen who's who's not. He's not necessarily a natural frontman, is he? He's not overburdened with um, either charisma or front uh, or, or front. Because <laughs> this is sort of an. Uh, a, it's reaching for anthemic the tune and it, mm. it, it's which I appreciate the ambition of, of of that always when when people do that, but it doesn't quite. Doesn't quite hit it, and he's his voice is not quite up to a, not quite up to an anthem either. It's quite it's a bit reedy. Mm. I'm suddenly overcome with just self disgust though. I mean, he's sitting here going, mm, look at them on top of the pops. Mm, yeah. does, this happen, does this happen to you occasionally, or is it just me? You just go, oh, God, I'm such a cunt. But no, <laughs> no, they're on top of the pops. We never forget that they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Yes, I know this is yeah. a disclaimer, but still, and also they've been given the opportunity to be on top of the pops. So if they're not up to it, then, you know, tough shit. <laughs> Fair enough. The thing is that um, I thought when we were, um, when when you were telling us about this episode, I was like, I have no idea what this is. And then when I heard it, it wasn't until the chorus kicked in that I went, oh, it's this. And All right. I, I knew it from, apparently it was the most played track on Radio 1 yes. in 1988. So yes. Which I shows heard just it. how little of Radio 1 I was listening to at the time. Because so I swear funny. down, this is the first time I've heard this song. Yeah, no, I definitely heard it. And I was just like, oh, okay, but there's no memory attached to it at all. Do you know no. what I mean? You know when you hear a thing and you go, ooh, and a, a, you get a flash of some half-remembered something in your brain or just a feeling or a sensation. And with this, it was like, oh, oh, it's that. And so it, mm. it, it was just like somebody very boring in my brain went... Yes, we have heard this before. It's like, oh, okay, thanks, thanks for the information. It was just new, completely neutral, you know. Mm. But then I realised I, I was like, what does this remind me of? And I had to sing various things in my head until <laughs> I hit on it. And it's, um, wouldn't it be good by Nick Kershaw? Yes, yes. yeah, yeah, big time. Big That's time, what yes. this is. It's it's a sort of slightly kind of sleepier version of of that. Mm. But yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the chorus is that there's a. I mean, it, it starts in the way that. I like things to start. There's a kind of loping grandiosity about it and a melancholy, mm. which is like, oh, this is all up my street. There's a slightly talk-talky sort of thing with the yeah, yeah, strident yeah. piano, yeah, yeah. which is nice. It's really nice. And then the chorus kicks in and it's like, oh, there's a sort of there's the Irish whistle that aligns with the vocal oh. line. I just thought it's kind of, it just feels unnecessary. I mean, it's like, of course you want to align yourself with the proud tradition and you want to reference it, but it's just kind of not adding anything here. It's like No, it does go a bit Irishy at the end, doesn't it? Yeah. To start off, I've got to say that the drummer, um, Paul Crowder, um, messaged me on Twitter earlier this year about something over there. Um, You're not going to slag my band off, are you? <laughs> he makes music documentaries. Ah. So I just want to say that the drumming on this track is wonderful, brilliant, mega, superb. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, um, he's... Oh, by the way, he was also the engineer on Last Christmas by Wham! And oh, Careless was he now? Last Christmas oh. by Wham and Careless Whisper by George Michael, and, and on um, the uh, on Susie's Nocturne live album, 
And in terms of films, he you know he's won awards for films about skateboarding. This is one called Dogtown and Z Boys. Or Z- oh, really? Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, and he, he co-directed um, the film about the the American football team, New York Cosmos, uh, Once in a Lifetime. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. So he's you know he he's a significant filmmaker. So I just want to praise his drumming. Yeah. <laughs> what amazing careers people have. You know, you mm. this is the thing is once you start doing, and this is going to come up again later as well. Is like these three minutes that you see of someone on top of the pops. Um, might be the the height of of what they've done, or it might be nothing in com- compared to what they mm. went on to do. You know exactly. But yeah, uh, we've we've heard a bit about the singer Terry's past before this moment, and he was already thirty three, so it's kind of last chance saloon for him. And you you, you look at the the rest of the band, they all look fairly old as well. They all look like knocking knocking on a bit. Um, <laughs> I actually watched the clip of Terry Sharp uh, in his previous band, The Star Jets, on Top of the Pops. And I've got to say, to some people, it might look like very tinny amateur punk, but it dawned on me that if somebody put it to me that it sounds a bit like the early Manic Street Preachers, mm. I couldn't really deny it, because it kind of does. No, I like War Stories. I was shocked no. when I was doing the notes for this and found out that it wasn't a, a top 40 yet. Because I remember that song very well. I loved it at the time. Oh, it's because... the first time I've heard it, I've got to be honest. Um, and then I guess he had his moment making a cameo in the Bananarama video for Shy Boy. Right. He was the Shy Boy, was he? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in that video. So, um, But yeah, you, you, you do get the sense that this is his last big shot mm. or their last big shot at it. It only reached number 20, but it, it feels like a bigger hit. Mm. And, and uh, Sarah mentioned that... It was the most played song on Radio 1 in 88. You said, Al, that you can't remember no. it. I can. This this is my thought. It's like, all right, well, it wasn't a big chart hit, but the reason it's stuck in my head, because it really is stuck in my head, it, is that it was on the radio all the fucking yeah. time. It really was. Radio 1 really wanted that to be bigger than it was. The verses of the song, uh, as Sarah pointed out, are... Quite, you know, quite talk talkish with the piano. Quite uh, white pajama, yeah. I would say. Uh, if if anyone doesn't know what white pajama music is, uh, where can they find out, Al? You can go to the uh, chart music <laughs> A to Z, our wicker. Yes. Yeah. Or you can just call a Simon in a pub after you've shouted bummer yeah, dog yeah. at him. Ask him to explain to you about white pajama music after you've crossed his palm with bummer talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it starts off in that quite kind of downbeat way, but the chorus spoils it or, or, or improves it depending. On your taste by going all all epic, mm. you know it's it's one of those kind of standing on a cliff top, gazing meaningfully into the oncoming wind with you know yeah. your 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 mullet flapping in yeah. the breeze. He spoils it by not having a mullet. Yes. Actually, this band sound they sound like they got mullets. They haven't, but they, <laughs> but they they, they ought to. Yes. They ought to. But somehow they they don't quite have the conviction of their own mega epicness mm. because you know when when it comes to the bit in the shadow of this truly dying world mm. something catches his eye in the top of the pops audience and he does a cheesy grin yeah and it just <laughs> seems to kind of go against the the sort of tone of what he's trying to say in in the song but the the chorus it all right yeah it is um very similar to the Nick Kershaw song wouldn't it be good but it it is massive it's a, it's an impossible to argue with chorus you just like Oh, okay, um, I'm going to just sit here while you do your thing, chorus, because you are huge. It's mm. you know a very big chorus. A weird thing to still be happening in the late 80s, this kind of music, or then again, maybe not, because no. there was a lot of what I call record company rock knocking around at this yes. time. So it was bands like Diesel Park West, River City People, Goodbye Mr. McKenzie, lots of three-word yeah. names. And then also people like Hurrah, the Milltown Brothers, then Jericho, yeah. who actually broke big for five minutes. Danny Wilson, who yes. are actually in, in this top 40. Finally, after 
the third reissue. Mm. But th- th- this sort of um, airbrushed, stonewashed pop rock that record companies really spent a lot of money on and, and yeah. really thought could break big, um, and usually it didn't. Um, the the song, um, the Wikipedia entry for it says the song references their experiences of the Troubles mm. uh, with a capital T. Well, yeah, it does, but it's not exactly suspect device. Is it? It's no, not even no, sun- it certainly it's, it's, isn't. It's not even Sunday Bloody Sunday. No. Right? It, it goes, these rivers run too deep with schemes of men for days that lay ahead. They sell their souls so cheap. They breed mistrust and fill my heart with dread. Yeah. So it's not. Why very don't they just make about... some love on wasteland? Before <laughs> exactly say. right. I guess they're trying to appeal to all communities and make a plea for unity mm. through the barricades, as you say. But even if you didn't know that one of them was called Gerard Spud Murphy, <laughs> you could you could probably figure out the community that they're coming from i mean it's got the tin whistle and um the fiddle and there has to be a genius to sort of kind of decode that um and indeed terry sharp went to saint malachy's college which is a big catholic school in belfast eamon holmes went there and martin o'neill that, that's where he's coming from <laughs> sorry this is some really granules i have to take my hat off to to you for your, the depth of your research here mm-hmm. this is amazing oh, man I'm, I'm i'm fucking pro here yeah um <laughs> so uh they, they were managed by simon fuller who later yes. invented the spy skills and s club and simon fuller right was certified by billboard as being the most successful british music manager of all time and that's that's including people like brian epstein and uh, andrew lou golden mm. so I, I read an interview and again deep research here with terry sharp from the adventures where he says i think he made all his mistakes with us yes so he's laughing about it now mm. um i find it kind of hard to hate this song it's very not me mm. um it's it it was very much against everything that i i was into at the time there's something a bit upsetting about how the guy when he sings open up your arms it's actually open up your arms is open <laughs> I, I i never liked that kind of thing but it's kind of as i say it's it's this kind of steamroller of a big chorus that's impossible to argue with um i don't think they necessarily had much else in the locker. Um, mm. In in the dying seconds of this performance, I don't know if you noticed, but he crouches down and 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 frantically waves at something in the distance. And I would say it's the adventures chart career leaving them. Yeah, the taxi for the adventures. No wonder he's fucking put off though, Simon, because you know Top of the Pops are, are rolling out their new uh, innovation. The camera crew they've got they've got handheld cameras now which means they can really get involved on stage. And it gives us, as the audience, the opportunity to see the keyboard player cupping his bollocks as he plays with his free <laughs> hand. I didn't see that. Yes, yes. Oh, and another thing I thought was kind of sweet about this is that there's a female member of the band, uh, Eileen Gribben, I think her name is. Mm. She plays the viola and backing singer. Um, on this record, she doesn't appear to do anything. She doesn't really appear to do any backing singing. But they're obviously like, well, look, you're in the band. Yeah. We're on top of the pops. You're fucking coming with us. Yes. So she just sort of stands there and sort of uh, boogies a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't bez just yet, can you? You just bring your knitting in that, and you know. Yeah. That'd be really good if someone just sat there and, and knitted a scarf. <laughs> yeah. The only other note I've got for this uh, song is stop fucking whooping, stupid audience. But they're all pissed. <laughs> yeah. They're all smashed out their minds on, on Malibu and Pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah, this is such a Malibu and pineapple situation, this this entire 
era of Top of the Pops, isn't it? So the following week, Broken Land slipped up three places to number 20, but got no further. The follow-up, Drowning in the Sea of Love, would only get to number 44 in July of this year, and they never got to suckle at the teat of the top 40 ever again. After taking a folkier direction, their next LP, Trading Secrets with the Moon, flopped in early 1990, and they were dropped by Elektra. And after being picked up by Polydor, they put out two more LPs, which also failed to chart, and they split up in 1993. All right, and Pop Craig Junctors, I do believe it is time to step back from this episode and catch a bit of a breather. So come and join us tomorrow for more 1988-related locks and jollities. On behalf of Sarah B and Simon Price, my name's Al Needham. Go easy. Step light, Lee. Stay pop crazed. <laughs> Sharp music. GreatBigOwl.com Heavy Pencil. An actor of my experience, you just get run dry. A podcast sitcom with Anna Crilly and Tony Gardner. I played played Edmund Gilder and he played Fanny Snatch. The Observer called it a lovely thing. Wonderfully funny, pitched perfectly, produced with a light touch. I'm not having any more of this. I need you to pull me off immediately. Heavy Pencil from Great Big Owl. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.